Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Epistemologically, you can never be fully sure that this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. You can only believe this because I say so every month and my show is on their website and they say so on the Facebook page and the Twitter feed. But this could all be an elaborate prank or the lies of an evil demon. Of course, this is all very unlikely, and so while it may not be knowledge, it is probably a true belief to say that this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Another true belief is that Agora is the home of a number of intelligent, independently produced podcasts on topics from history to science. If we take these true beliefs as given, we can therefore infer that this show is most likely an intelligent, independently produced podcast, since, as Aristotle famously argued, if all A is B and all B is C, therefore all A is C. What you cannot argue is that this show is about the history of the English Renaissance. While some podcasts on the Agora Podcast Network, such as Heather Tesco's show, are indeed about this subject, not all shows are. So for the same reason all barracuda are fish, but not all fish are barracuda, my show cannot be inferred to be at the, about the topic of the history of the English Renaissance. So if you want to learn more about the history of the English Renaissance, you'll have to go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and look up Heather Tesco's Renaissance English History podcast, which I would in fact recommend. It's a lovely show. Well, that was fun, but maybe a bit conceptual. I'm a little burned out from all the thinking involved in that syllogism. You know who didn't think a lot about syllogistic logic? The Vikings. By all accounts, in the two or three centuries of the Viking Age, they conducted many raids, built cities across Russia and even into Ireland. They engaged in long-distance trade. They even discovered North America, but they did not engage in any Socratic dialogues or formal logical reasoning. Don't believe me? Well, to empirically check my assertions, you will have to listen to Noah Tetzner's History of the Vikings podcast online at historyofthevikings.com. Noah goes through every facet of Viking history, interviews experts, and generally allows you, the listener, to wallow in everything Viking like a hippopotamus on a hot African day in its favorite river, nostrils and eyes peeking out disinterestedly as the cool waters of Viking history lap over you. So go check it out today. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts: those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. London, England, between 1393 and 1400, pretending to be someone else. As I went on my way, weeping for sorrow, I saw a simple man hanging on a plow. His ragged coat was made of coarse material, and his hood was full of holes, so that his hair stuck out. 
His shoes were thickly patched and his toes stuck out as he worked. His stockings hung over the back of his shoes on all sides, and he was spattered with mud as he followed the plow. His mittens were made of rags, and the fingers were worn out and covered with mud. He sank in the fen almost to his ankles as he drove four feeble oxen that were so pitiful their ribs could be counted. His wife walked with him, carrying a long goad. Her short coat was torn, and she was wrapped in a winding sheet for protection from the weather. Blood flowed on the ice from her bare feet. At the end of the strip, a little child wrapped in rags lay in a scrap bowl. Two twelve-year-old children stood on either side, and they all sang a sorrowful song. The poor man sighed sorely and said, Children, be still. Quote from Piers Plowman's Creed, an anonymous work in a Piers Plowman tradition. The work was translated by George W. Tuma and Dinah Hazel, uh, both working at the time at San Francisco State University and available on the San Francisco State University Medieval Forum website. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs and this is episode 46 Class Structure of the Middle Ages Part 3, The Commons Part 2, Prima Nocta. Before we get started today, I just want to acknowledge that this is a very long episode, and there will in fact be an intermission halfway through. This is sort of going to be episode for August and September, so in that intermission I will also be plugging the Agora show for September. Sorry things have gotten a little bit behind. Uh, it actually isn't because this is a big episode. Uh, we've been having some technical difficulties with Andrew and everything, so um, I, I, I hope that's okay. We're going to be caught up, but you're definitely going to get enough content to make up for it, hopefully. So uh, if you have any problems with that, just give me, uh, drop me a line on the Facebook page or on the website, uh, private message me, whatever, just email. Um, but... Uh, hopefully it's all okay, uh, and this will bring us back up to speed. Now then, in the popular 1995 historical documentary Braveheart, Mel Gibson reenacts the ramifications of an attempt by the English nobles to impose decadent English feudalism on the honorable clans of the Scottish Highlands, namely the rebellion of the entire country, a clandestine affair with a French princess, and William Wallace's eventual brutal execution. Of course, Braveheart was not actually a documentary, which makes the numerous glaring historical errors slightly more forgivable. But when I first watched it, one claim in particular struck me. The precipitating event for the rebellion in the movie was an attempted rape of William Wallace's wife by an English noble, who sought to excuse his actions as legally permissible under a law called Prima Nocte, Latin for first night. Supposedly, this law gave the Lord the right to sleep with any bride in his manor on her wedding night. This is in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie, and it kind of took me out of the action. The question wasn't, of course, whether something like this had happened to William Wallace. William Wallace was a noble, and thus, even by the rules of the movie, would not have been subject to such a rule. But there's a bigger question behind the specifics. The movie seems to be indicating that, in England... Prima Nocta was actually an accepted legal practice. I want you all to think about the specifics of this for a second. 
the average medieval village would have had a few hundred people in it, and the manor house would have had a small garrison of a dozen soldiers at most, most of whom would have been peasant soldiers probably from the village itself. Given the small size of the village, everyone knew everyone else, and so a wedding was a huge event. Essentially, the entire village would have been at the parish church, and they would be completely plastered on homemade beer. The adult men and women of the village would have spent their entire lives doing manual labor, and they were all singing and dancing, and there is a fiddle player, and the kids are there doing a maypole or whatever. In walks the lord with a dozen or so men, wishes everyone well, delivers more alcohol as is customary under the rules of the manor, and then demands to sleep with the bride. I mean, you can imagine this, right? The fiddle, fiddler stops playing mid-chorus with a scratch on the string. Even the children stop singing. And let me just remind you that half or more of the soldiers accompanying the Lord are peasants from this village. But these English people are just so beaten down by feudalism that they just let it happen. I mean, sure, England's history is full of peasant uprisings, and sure, murder rates in medieval villages may have been calculated to be similar to those seen in the south side of Chicago, but sh sure, this group of angry, drunk, physically powerful men and women who are fanatically devoted to a religion that prizes sexual morality above almost anything else, they're just going to let this happen. So much so that it gets added to law codes compiled by monks, bishops, and other religious figures. Now, I'm not saying that there was no sexual violence against the peasantry by the nobility in the Middle Ages. As we all know from the past year or so, it, this being 2018, people in positions of political and social power abuse their positions even today. But we have not codified such conduct into law, and our society is not obsessive about sexual morality. The idea of prima nocta would seem so flagrantly to contradict everything our common sense tells us about human behavior as to require some fairly extraordinary proof. And to cut a long story short, there is no such proof. The closest thing to a primary source verification are stories about the practice from centuries later. As it happens, this is true about many of the things we think we know about the Middle Ages, such as the prevalence of witch burnings and the use of Baroque torture implements. In all these cases, the primary source evidence for such things is actually non-existent. Such tales only come into being centuries later, in a time when people in Europe were trying to distance themselves from their feudal past. Ironically, but perhaps not surprisingly, witch burnings and creative torture were much more common in these later time periods than in the era so criticized as medieval. People in every era reinterpret their collective past and so it is fairly common for historic events to accumulate layers of interpretation. But nowhere is the contrast between different interpretations quite so stark as in the Middle Ages, particularly as it relates to the peasantry. On the one hand, you have the fairy tale version of the Middle Ages, which seems the era as a simpler time, when knights in shining armor rode around and fought dragons, or saved Disney princesses from German castles with pointy roofs on their towers. The peasantry were a simple folk, who valued the work done by the nobility to save them from dragons, giants, etc., and wanted nothing more than to be left alone by mystical creatures so that they could get on with farm work. I'm not sure how many people actually believe in this version of history, but it does seem to continue to contribute to Disney movies and Ren Fairs and all that kind of thing. All the self-aware meta-jokes of modern princess movies don't ever really seem to address the structural source of the wealth enjoyed by the nobility in their castles. Probably more common these days is a narrative that is as dark as the other one is cloyingly bright. 
In this narrative, the peasantry are entirely composed of downtrodden, miserable dirt farmers who live in such complete terror of the nobility that they have no agency. Any kind of non-conforming thought resulted in the offender being burned as a heretic by their own friends and relatives, who had been brainwashed by the church. They even allow the lords to sleep with their wives, conceding the right of prima nocta. The height of this view of the Middle Ages is of course Monty Python's Holy Grail, though actually the portrait in that movie is much more nuanced than most appreciate. Generally, people fixate on the mud farming, the bringing out of the dead, and the anarcho-syndicalist communes. Maybe not that. Versions of these narratives run deep in our culture, though of course they have been reinterpreted continually. Presumably people in the Middle Ages thought of their time what any of us think of our own time. It just kind of is. Some stuff we hate, some stuff we accept unthinkingly. Many people of the time period probably enjoyed some of the things that we find so shocking. For example, many peasants probably had no problem with their lack of democratic rights. After the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, there was something of an intellectual backlash, the origins of which are far too interesting for this podcast, but which resulted in the Romantic movement. Many of the intellectual problems we still deal with today date back to arguments between proponents of the Enlightenment and proponents of Romanticism, though of course at the time these ideas developed they were entirely jumbled together and often advocated by the same person. For more on this, check out Mike Duncan's episodes on the French Revolution, and the entire original run of Star Trek. Anyway, a big part of the Romantic movement was an appreciation of emotionally effective art and stories, including a big helping of quote-unquote traditional stories. It was from this tradition that we get many of the collections of European folk tales, folk music, folk art, and other folksy things. These were often consciously reinterpreted to serve political purposes of the later time period. For example, traditional folk music tunes were often uh, combined with lyrics to promote nationalism and foster a sense of identity. The very idea that there was value in the stories, songs, and traditions of the lower classes was an outgrowth of the democratically oriented romantic political tradition, which would have been extremely confusing to pretty much everyone in the Middle Ages. As another example, many of the story collections of this time period latched on to the small part of chivalry that was fairly okay with the idea that knights ought to serve a social function. While in the original story, that social function usually involved killing large numbers of people for some reason, in the new tellings it was often emphasized that the knight was helping the poor and the downtrodden. While not invented from whole cloth, this was hardly the main goal of the feudal lords who viewed poor people as cattle. The pendulum has swung back and forth many times ever since. Since the 60s, notions of social justice have often seen the nobility as stand-ins for a modern ruling class, or has viewed the communal lifestyle of the medieval village as an idealistic, bucolic alternative to modern industrialism. Obviously, the truth of what medieval society really was like is in between these absurd extremes of the Romantic Middle Ages and the Grimdark Middle Ages. Still, just, you know, appealing to the middle is not a real description of what was going on, so what I hope to achieve with today's episode is a more 3D picture of the common men and women of this time period. Now, it is a bit of a tall order for one episode to give a passably detailed account of the lifestyle of the illiterate 95% of the population of an entire continent. So to help, I'm going to be splitting this up a little bit. Uh, today, I'm going to focus the episode on rural peasants living in villages, and I will deal with urban commoners next time. 
It should just be said that there were a lot of peasants, as I said in the last episode, who were not necessarily living on estates and villages. There were freeholder farmers, there were hamlets, um, so I am definitely oversimplifying things here. And actually, on that note, I'm oversimplifying a lot of things. Uh, we talked about last time how rural feudal Europe was extremely local and was defined by a cellular power structure. But right off the bat, reality was a little more complex than the pedagogical image that we've been starting out with. For the peasantry, the farmers of the countryside, their lives were organized around the village in which they lived. That was their communal unit. Unfortunately, the legal structure that they lived in did not always cooperate. Over the course of the ten centuries of the Middle Ages, things changed. The villagers moved around as was convenient. But as we discussed several episodes ago, the legal system of the Middle Ages did not approve of change, and so legal borders remained maddeningly static. A village could often be located in multiple noble estates, or manors, and the villagers would sometimes owe taxes, fees, or labor to all the lords involved, depending on the year and the season. Church parishes also had a major role in the life of the villagers, also collected taxes, though they called them tithes, and also had borders that were set in the deep mists of time and were never changed. There are a few extreme examples in the records of a village with three lords and two parish churches, uh, so next time you feel like complaining about the service at the DMV may be a bit of perspective. For our purposes, however, let's talk today about an imaginary village that never existed, a normative case that will help us keep from going mad. In this village, there is one lord, one church, and one road through town, and the village follows the typical legal practices of its region. Because this is a statistical product, a normative case, no one village that ever existed will have been exactly like this village, but it will let us talk without having to cite every piece of evidence for and against and go through all the arguments in excruciating detail, and there are a lot of them. Podcast Methodological Confession Bless me, audience, for I have sinned. In today's episode, I'm going to be cramming in a ton of information, and I'm so going to be oversimplifying, uh, as I've already said several times. Um, to make this work, I'm also going to be doubling down on my Northern European normative bias out of sheer necessity. For one thing, there isn't quite as much material in English that's freely available to the public on Southern European rural society. This is a bit of a cop-out. I haven't put in quite as much time into digging as I could have uh, if, say, I were writing this as a paper for a college class. What research I've been able to do does suggest that much of what I'm about to say holds true-ish north and south, but there are some big areas of divergence. I'm going to try to address the big areas of divergence, but it is necessarily going to be a very condensed discussion, and in general, one should assume that in Southern Europe, things were much more corporate and urbanized. The other thing worth saying is that almost none of what I'm going to present here is without some criticism by someone. Years of diligent research on sources, both written and archaeological, have yielded some real interesting, exciting, tantalizing results for historians, but there have been some required inferential leaps that are worth noting. Much of the best most important evidence is actually archaeological, and it comes from the years of the Black Death in the 1340s or so. During this time, spoiler alert, the bubonic plague wiped out entire villages. 
Horrible to live through, I'm sure, but useful for us because it preserved thousands of villages across Europe. Much like Pompeii, this has allowed us much more of a detailed look at the way the peasants lived than we would get from written sources alone. And the pictures are very dramatic. I'm going to try and post some links to the pictures in the show notes. The houses are gone, of course, though the archaeologists are able to learn a lot from the foundations and the remaining material artifacts that fell into them. And this probably teaches the archaeologists the most, but what's the most dramatic to us, the lay people observing it, are the fields. Square miles of furrows are still there, uh, surrounding the old villages. The furrows uh, were created by uh, generations of people plowing the same roots over and over again, and they're obvious and dramatic and testimony to the work of generations of farm farmers. They're visible from a great distance. Near the middle of these fields is always a vacant, flat space, where the village itself once sat. It was never plowed and never got furrowed. And now it's gone. Unfortunately, there's kind of a firm date stamp on the snapshot we get from this evidence, and the canny of you will have picked out the problem. The date is about 200 years after our narrative stopped around the year 1000. Fortunately, such written and archaeological evidence as we have from before the Black Death lets us be fairly confident that many of the things we think we know about the 1340s were true also in the 1000s, but it does expose us to the issue of anachronism. I'm fairly confident in the picture I'm presenting, but historians continue to have very lively debates about almost every point I'm going to be making in this episode. End podcast confessional. So in our ideal village that never existed, the main occupation of everyone was agriculture. To be sure, there are a handful of specialists. There's a priest, a miller, a baker, probably a blacksmith of some kind. There may have been others. But all of these individuals would have owned land and spent a major portion of their time engaged in farming. And almost everyone in the village would have had a lot of what we might call DIY skills. The villages were never really self-sufficient, as we will discuss further in this episode and in the next episode, but that was the ideal to which they aspired. Most household goods were produced either in the home or in the village, using raw materials that were either grown by the village or gathered from the surrounding woodlands. Of course, almost all the food they ate was made locally. The agriculture that they practiced, open field agriculture, was coming to full maturity in northern Europe right where we paused our narrative, uh, between the years 800 and 1000. In this system, the land farmed by the village was divided into two or three parts or fields. In any given year, one field would be unplanted, one would be planted in spring, and one in autumn. There's several alternative versions of this that are discussed. I actually prefer the version where one field is planted with wheat and one field is planted with beans, or another crop that will help fix nitrogen in the soil, and then they would all be replanted again. Um, they would be planted once in the spring and once later on in the summer, so you'd get two crops. That seems to make more sense to me. Also, historians think it's likely that the two-field system predated the three-field one, possibly starting as early as the late Roman Empire. In some places, such as southern Europe, it was never really supplanted, which is a point we'll be coming back to. In any case, this system helped prevent the soil from becoming exhausted. In one of our earliest episodes, when we were talking about Eastern Europe, we talked about how many societies there practiced a semi-nomadic slash-and-burn agriculture, where the family would be forced to move to a new field after ten years or so. 
The two and three field system removed the need for this movement by giving the land time to recharge every third or second year. Also, during that fallow year, livestock would be grazed on the fallow field, and their droppings would help restore the soil. Speaking of the livestock, there was usually a variety of pasture lands in each village in addition to the fallow field. One we have already mentioned was the forest. While we tend to think of the brooding, chaotic forests of fairy tales as indicative of the medieval forest, and while people in the Middle Ages undoubtedly saw them to that way at least to some extent, that isn't really a full description of the relationship of the peasant and the woodland. Forests near a village served a vital economic role. Wood, vines, bark, sap, honey, medicines, herbs, nuts, and berries, and tree fruit were all gathered and all had what we might call uh, industrial in addition to their agricultural uses in the village. In the fall, pigs would be fattened up on acorns in the oak-heavy woodlands. Other wilderness areas, such as marshlands, provided hay and reeds for thatching houses. One of the misconceptions of the Middle Ages is that the felling of forests was a sign of prosperity, an unqualified, capital G, capital T, good thing, showing social progress. Historians nowadays do accept that the colonization of wilderness areas was a key sign of population growth, which could indicate prosperity, but too much colonization of wilderness areas was also probably a sign of population stress. Villages that did not have access to woodlands and wilderness faced potentially dire economic difficulties in this time and place. Of course, the main place that livestock were grazed was on a dedicated common pasture land. The droppings from the animals on this pasture land was a key resource for fertilizing the soil. Unfortunately, the lord of the village usually had exclusive rights to this resource. Adding insult to injury, unfree villagers would often have to gather and transport the manure for the lord as part of their labor duties, which was very unpopular. Within the village itself, the houses were clustered together, with local tradition dictating to some extent how close the clustering would be. Almost all the houses had about a quarter acre of land attached to them, which was used as a garden for growing vegetables, herbs, etc. to supplement the main production of the village uh, in terms of grains and dried beans. This entire property, the house and the land, was called a cottage, in, in England anyway. People who owned no land beyond their house and garden were called cottagers, at least in England. Uh, I should say that, again, because I'm working in English, a lot of my sources focus on England, but similar terms did exist on the continent. Um, the construction of the house itself varied by time and place. In Northern Europe, in the time period we're talking about, houses were probably one story, partly sunken into the ground, and long. In the middle of the house was the fire, vented by a hole in the roof, and surrounded by cooking paraphernalia. Knives, wooden plates and bowls, a cauldron, a flat rock, maybe a frying pan in a prosperous household. We talked a lot about cooking paraphernalia in the Potiversary episode, the second one, I believe. One third of the house would be separated from the rest by a ditch and maybe by a fence. In this third would be all the family's livestock, which was a big improvement from the old days when everyone just lived together with the livestock. So the livestock on one side, the family on the other side with the fire. We aren't entirely sure what kind of furniture the family might have had, though chairs were definitely not common yet. Beds were probably straw mats on the floor or in alcoves along the walls. Families often slept together in the same bed for warmth, particularly in the winter, and there was not much privacy. 
There was probably some sort of device for the storage of valuables, though food was probably kept in bags, baskets, uh, earthen jars, or hanging from the rafter on a string. The roof was thatched, and given the open fire venting directly up to the thatched roof, fires were common. The wooden beams that supported the roof were filled in with woven reeds, sometimes packed with clay or plaster. The construction was generally not very sound, and the term housebreaking was a very literal offense at the time. Legal records often include tales of someone literally tying a rope to a wooden beam and their horse and just pulling the wall down, grabbing everything they could and making a run for it. In Northern Europe, it was increasingly common for the family to consist of what we might call a nuclear family today. The household was built around a breeding pair, their kids, maybe some other relatives, maybe some servants, depending on their level of wealth. In most places and times in history, this was not the norm. The cohabitation of large extended families in large houses was really the rule in traditional societies, so much so that I will spend some effort later in the episode on one of the popular theories as to why Northern Europe went in such a different direction. For now, though, we need to take a look at what the peasants in the Middle Ages did outside their homes, and this is going to require us to go back to that three-field system and also, of course, to the Roman Empire. When last we left the commoners, we had slaves and free farmers working on large agricultural plantations owned by the landed magnates, which were rapidly on the way towards becoming the feudal estates ruled by lords in the Middle Ages. This process did not leave the slave-worked latifunda of the late empire intact. As the demographic pressures that we discussed in the last episode improved the lot of the slaves, it was eventually found to be more efficient to give them a reason to work for the Lord rather than trying to force them to work at whip point. The solution settled upon was to give the slave a patch of land, have them work it, and come by every now and again to collect a portion of the profits. There was plenty of precedent for this in Roman legal traditions. I actually mentioned this last time out. Um, wealthy Romans would often buy slaves with skills, like blacksmiths, uh, and set them up with a shop in a city. The owner would give them the materials they needed to get started and take a cut of the profits. The slave got their startup capital and could eventually buy their freedom if they did well in business. In much the same way, the owners of the agricultural slaves in the late empire gradually began to change the way they ran their estates. They would provide some key pieces of capital, like the land itself, a mill, a bread oven, maybe some livestock, and then let the slaves shift for themselves. Like I said, the owner would show up and collect rents from time to time. Uh, but otherwise, the slaves would be able to direct their own efforts. The lords would usually hold back some land for themselves, but I'll, I'll get back to that. One of the key things about this is that it's pretty easy to see how free farmers ended up slipping right into these communities as the Middle Ages took shape. It really makes it easier to understand why they were willing to do so, even under the threat of force. They may have had to sell their assets to the Lord, but the Lord would, in return, give them a place to live, some land, some access to the village mill and bakery, and as time passed, even a local church. It's not like the Lord was putting them into some kind of nightmarish chain gang. The Lord was just collecting rents. Not something you would choose, but not a nightmare. Of course, the entire thing was structured to make the Lord money. The village mill, for example, was worked by a miller, who was given a monopoly on all the milling that needed to be done in the village. In return, the miller had to pay the lord for the use of the mill. 
the same with the baker, the same with the priest, at least for the first few centuries of Christianity in Europe. The Lord also retained rights to much of the land in the village. We already mentioned the Lord's rights to the manure from the common pasture. The Lord also directly owned all the wild game in the forest, and a large portion, uh, often around half, of the actual farmed land in the village. This was called the Lord's Domain, and was worked by the villagers as part of their dues to the Lord. Podcast footnote. Pronounced Domain, spelled D-E-M-E-S-N-E. Gotta love French. The concept of the domain spread up from the estate into the feudal hierarchies as time went on. We think that's true. Larger lords, dukes, and kings, and such, realized the value of holding back some land for themselves, and began systematizing this practice as they worked to structure the feudal system in a more rational way. It is in this context that you will sometimes hear or read about people talking about the domain of the king of France, or something like that. Um, you should not think, in this case, of the actual land in the villages owned by the King of France, um, nor the in entire country of France, the domain of France, but the portion of the entire estates in the country of France which the king held directly, and which his ancestors had not given away to dukes, counts, etc. So, the domain of the King of France is the estates that he holds directly. The domain of the lord on a manor is the land in the estate that they hold directly. Of course, one of the overriding political questions of the Middle Ages was how much power the king of an area held outside their domain, but that's a discussion for another time. End podcast footnote. So the lords had structured things on their estates such that, as we might say these days, the house always wins. But then again, the peasants in the village were not just drones, plugging away to grow the lord's wheat in return for whatever scraps of food he might deign to give them. The Lord had given them land for their own use, and they worked it for their own profit, so long as they more or less paid their rents. Inevitably, given that this was the Middle Ages, use of this land became hereditary, and rapidly it came to be acknowledged that the farmers, in effect, owned the land. They could buy it and sell it and make it part of a dowry and inherit it, and yet all the land was also part of the Lord's estate, which the Lord owned. Explaining this is going to require us to get into some intense legal theory, so prepare yourself. Maybe put some ice down your shirt to prepare. Ownership of the land in the medieval village was expressed in terms of that two- or three-field common-field system that we discussed starting out. How did each peasant own land and yet do all their farming in these three fields? Well, in short, the land was in some sense owned collectively by the village, but the individual families owned small strips of each field. Everyone knew how much land they owned, and every year the village would gather together and talk about how much they were going to plant that year. The villagers would decide which field was going to be planted when, and they would plan out how the work was going to be done. Then everyone would go and work their own strip of the larger fields. They would also work out what was going to be planted that year and when to do it, and all the other details that people in a skilled profession like farming know which elude the rest of us. With me so far, the village land was owned collectively and there was collective decision-making, but strips of each th of the three fields were owned by individual families, and the village collaborated on how the farming would happen each year and which fields were getting planted. So then, after the meeting, each villager would go out and start planting their little strips. But why strips? Squares or rectangles might seem more intuitive, and indeed this is how things worked in southern Europe. But in northern Europe, by 1000 or so, they'd adopted a contraption called the heavy plow. 
The specifics are not super important. It was a big heavy bit of kit with an iron tip that allowed a farmer to hitch a team of oxen to the plow and would allow the plow to dig very deeply into the soil and turn it. Once the soft collar was developed around this time, horses could also be fitted to the team and this all apparently improved productivity greatly. These contraptions, while useful for productive farming, did not turn on a dime. As a result, land ownership was generally reorganized around the need to have the farmer turn as few times as possible in a single plowing session. And so, in northern Europe, the fields were divided up into the strips I mentioned, which were plowed in the same way every year and, as a result, rapidly developed, easily discerned furrows, sometimes as much as a foot high. It was these strips of land, delineated by these furrows, that the peasants owned. And I should just say that in some very traditional areas of Europe and, and even Canada, you'll still find places where land ownership is in these really long strips. So rather than compact little plots of land being owned by each individual family who could then use them as they saw fit, the peasants of the northern European feudal estate were part of the property of the estate, but they also in some way owned the estate, or at least a portion of it. They could buy and sell the claim they had amongst themselves, which allowed them to accumulate or lose land, but the claim on the land was still expressed in terms of a communal land ownership system, where everyone got together and made collective decisions and worked the land semi-cooperatively. The actual land owned by each family was held in the form of strips, or portions of strips, that could be plowed by a heavy plow team. Good? Good. In Southern Europe, things evolved rather differently though some of the bones of the system were similar. Now I need to caveat this by reiterating that I found a lot less material on Southern Europe, but from what I've been able to gather, Southern Europe also treated the villagers as part of the estate. They also in many ways held the land collectively and made a lot of the decisions uh, collectively as such. It does seem that there was a lot more variation in Southern Europe given the near proximity of cities, which made it difficult to prevent the flight of peasants. And on the flip side, uh, there was a more interventionist approach by the nobility, who were also interested in trade. Southern Europe always had more what we might call cash crops, like olives and grapes, but they were always intermixed with grain. We're going to get back to that. The biggest differences between Southern and Northern Europe was how the land was held and how it was worked. Um, and this has led to much speculation as to whether these issues are linked. You see, Southern Europe never adopted the heavy plow, in general. Southern Europe also retained the neat, square, easy-to-survey field system that they inherited from the Romans, and they generally farmed it using a two-field system. It's worth saying that Southern Europe is much more hilly and mountainous than Northern Europe, and that could have prevented the plow catching on culturally, even in places where it was practical. Or, it could be that the square field landholding system was so deeply embedded in the legal system, and the legal system survived so well, that in southern Europe the plow seemed impractical to the human geography of the region. Whatever the reason, southern Europe would remain reliant on light plows and hand tools for the rest of the Middle Ages. The communally held land of the villages was therefore divided up into neat squares instead of furloughed strips. It has also been speculated that this failure to adopt the plow can help explain why Southern Europe retained the extended family household structure we discussed earlier. Or, to put it maybe a bit more accurately, the adoption of the heavy plow in Northern Europe could explain why Northern Europe changed its lifestyle so dramatically from what had been normal since the Neolithic Revolution. 
In Northern Europe, the adoption of technology allowed fields to be worked with fewer hands, while in Southern Europe it remained important to coordinate the working of fields with as many hands as possible, even at the family level. This remains a controversial hypothesis, and it strays into the area of technological determinism, so I do hold it at arm's length. After all, we may be attaching too much importance to a piece of farm equipment. For myself, though, I suspect that there is a grain of truth in here that is probably important to talk about, but it is just an opinion, and like I said, arm's length. So, for those of you who prefer shorter episodes, I'm going to break the episode here so we can have a nice intermission. I'm going to play some nice music, and when we get back, I'm going to plug the Agora podcast for September and thank the patrons. Thanks very much. enjoyed the lovely music of the Blue Dot Sessions during our intermission. And uh, for September, I would just like to call everyone's attention to the Agora podcast Lands of Leviathan by Brock and Peter. Uh, Lands of Leviathan is by two uh, professional academics who specialize in international relations, which is something I'm interested in. I actually majored in that in undergrad. And they like to draw relationships between uh, international relations concepts, uh, particularly things that are important in terms of current events, and fictional universes like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. It's an interesting show, it's a lot of fun, uh, so go check it out. Now, this month we also have several patrons who are worthy of honor and praise. First up, we have Gronkar Two Hands whose name obviously needs no elaboration from me. Up next, we have Sarah, who shall be known henceforward as Lady Sarah, second cousin once removed of Cleveland. Finally, we have Ricardo, whose honorable donation in our time of need has resulted in his new sobriquet, Ricardo, the Iron Wombat. Thank you to all of our patrons and donors, and I do encourage you, if you can, to join them. Or if you'd like to check us out on I, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcatcher platform you choose, uh, give us a rating and re written review that really helps us uh, come to the attention of new people. Or just drop by the Facebook uh, group or the webpage and sit, give me a comment, uh, let me know how I'm doing. Uh, thanks very much to everybody for listening, and let's, uh, let's get back to the show. So, when the peasants bought and sold their lands, what they were buying and selling was actually a fairly sophisticated legal product. They were acquiring the permanent use of a defined portion of the land that made up the village, a portion that in some sense changed every year. They had land in all three fields. That portion of the land came with a further layer of legal ramifications, because of course the Lord had some interest in what was going on here. The Lord would not have wanted any one peasant to be able to buy up all the land in a village, of course, though that was always a pretty distant possibility. More importantly, this was actually the Lord's land, remember? And the Lord needed to make sure that they didn't lose anything out of these transactions, legally or financially. 
On the flip side, these transactions offered a chance for the Lord to gain something, an opportunity that was generally utilized very enthusiastically. To explain the full extent of what the Lord had to gain, though, we need to back away from the land use and economics for a moment and talk about social status. We've talked a lot about how the tenant farmers, the free farmers, and the former slaves were sort of demographically forced together on these feudal estates, and how their status became very similar. I even said the words virtually indistinguishable in the last episode. That is certainly true from an outsider's perspective, but the peasants of the Middle Ages never really forgot who was who in the village. After all, there were only a few hundred people in the village at any one time, and no one had invented podcasts yet, so they didn't really have much to do with their time other than farm, try to stay warm, and talk about themselves. Some of the peasants, then, had free ancestors, and some had unfree ancestors. And actually, the distinctions were even more complex than that, because some of the peasants were descended from Romans, and some from Germanic foot soldiers, and then even within the Roman and Germanic societies, there were tribal groupings that had unique and defined identities. All these distinctions persisted for a kind of amazingly long time in these hyper-local village societies. Strange as it may seem to us, these differences had legal ramifications that survived long enough to be codified into the first written legal codes, with the first being codified um, actually around our time period, around the year 1000. Some of these differences had to do with what we might call the criminal code, though the distinction between civil and criminal law was basically non-existent. Uh, most famously, the punishment for killing a noble, or a free person, and a slave were different, and there were similar different variations along this entire spectrum from free to unfree that we were just talking about in terms of the different kinds of Romans, the different kinds of Germans. Uh, and then there were also... Uh, important differences depending on who committed the crime. If a noble person killed someone else versus if a, a slave killed someone else. Just as important in the legal codes, the value placed on the testimony of a witness also differed based on their legal status, so this stuff was really important. But possibly more pertinent to today's discussion is the impact of status on the dues owed by the commoner to a lord. To put it simply, the whole grouping of free commoners tended to owe less in rent, taxes, fees, dues, and, and labor requirements, relatively speaking, than unfree commoners. Speaking broadly, the unfree commoners were much more likely to have to provide direct labor to the lord working some portion of the year on the lord's domain. But legal codes from the early Middle Ages preserve really mind-bending numbers of distinctions and grades of unfree commoners, each with their own combinations of rents and taxes and labor dues. These codes did tend to simplify over time, as the different kinds of peasants just intermarried beyond the point of distinction. But this status knowledge persisted for centuries and never really went away. From the Lord's perspective, this all gave them a very direct interest in the personal lives of the commoners. If a free peasant married an unfree one, would that result in fewer unfree tenants in the next generation? Or if a free peasant bought land owned by an unfree one, would that result in fewer dues going to the lord? When a peasant died, who got the land? After generations of wrangling, most of which is invisible to us due to a lack of documentation, Compromises were reached on estates across Europe that differed in detail everywhere, but which had some broad commonalities. 
the Lord generally had the right to approve or disapprove of a marriage, a will, or a land sale. This right was generally circumscribed over time by a variety of forces, none the least of which was the increasing power of the church over things like marriage, but it never entirely went away, and tended to settle into a situation where the Lord was owed a fee by a peasant any time they got married, sold or inherited land, or created a will. Incidentally, such control over marriage was the kernel of truth around which the Prima Nocte myth was probably built. Podcast footnote. Ah yes, here it is, the tiny, minuscule grain of truth around which the Prima Nocte myth was built. Yes, the Lord had the right to say no to a marriage between their tenants, which, to be fair, is a pretty huge intrusion to their private lives from a modern viewpoint. But you have to remember that marriages were basically property deals, even amongst the peasants of the Middle Ages. It's also clear that the Lord didn't exercise this right, except in very, very rare circumstances. The entire thing basically became a cash grab as much as anything else. The Lord just wanted his fee. On the flip side, many, if not most, peasant marriages were not what you might call official. The church didn't really get involved in marriage at this level of society until the 1200s, and even then the real requirement for marriage was just basically a verbal agreement from the two people involved. It seems likely that for many poorer peasants, a marriage involved slipping off somewhere private, the whisperings of sweet nothings, and then a serious and frank conversation with the family the next morning. I consider it rather dubious that the Lord got his fee from this kind of marriage, which may be why the nobility were so cooperative in helping the church make marriage into a sacrament that required official sanction. Just my opinion, though. Marriages between wealthy peasants were, of course, much more formal, but... End podcast footnote. The one final issue that a Lord had was what happened if a free peasant purchased land from an unfree one. Well, the ultimate settlement in many places, though not all, was that the land itself could convey some amount of unfree status, which is bizarre, but stick with me. So if a free person purchased land from an unfree person, the land itself was considered unfree, and the free person would owe the lord the rent and labor dues that the previous tenant had owed for that land. But such an assessment would not be made for the peasant's other free lands, and they would still have the legal status of a free person in court. Ideally. This could be eroded over time, of course. Uh, and of course, the unfree peasant rarely just went away. They would still owe at least some of their original dues. So the Lord makes out pretty well from this. We see again that the legal system of the Middle Ages was definitely structured so that the house always wins. But it was hardly abject slavery in the sense that we would think of it. The peasants had just enough space for themselves within this context that they could basically live their lives. They could more or less marry who they wanted, they could farm, and if they were lucky and diligent, they could even improve their material position. The whole thing ends up looking extremely sophisticated, if not particularly desirable to a modern eye. A person's economic status could be determined by how much land one owned, if one had a skill, and one's social status. But social status itself was a complex mix of heredity and land ownership in an even more complex context of heavily differentiated caste decisions which went back to the barely remembered past. The fact that all of this developed and was retained in a barely literate society is quite amazing. 
Of course, the lack of written records made it very possible for a lord to gradually shift a person's status if they really wanted to over the generations. But the court records we have show the commoners as very aware of the legal codes, of their own status, and the fine-grained detail that governed their place in the world. Despite not being literate, the importance of this stuff in their lives meant that they tended to retain the information. So now we can come to the main question. What did this all mean in terms of the lifestyle of a medieval peasant family? The first thing to say is that it changed over time, but the short version of this is really that it depends on who you were in the socioeconomic structure of the Middle Ages, but let's get back to that. There are a few things we can say about everyone in the medieval village. Everyone farmed for a living, from the village headman to the priest to the blacksmith to the humblest day laborer. Any other position a person had was secondary to the need to get food out of the land, and everyone participated in that. In that context, it's worth saying that crop yields were very bad by modern standards. I've seen a lot of statistics on this, and it varied a lot by climate and region. Some people say that crop yields for wheat average around 2 to 1, which means that for every seed of grain you put in the ground, you got two back. I think... It's a little bit more reasonable to say that 3 to 1 or 4 to 1 was more common, um, but it depended very heavily on the place and the climate and also which crop you were talking about. Just to put this in a bit of context, uh, in modern farms they can get as good as 16 to 1 with chemical fertilizers and all that stuff. Now, if you look up a picture of a stalk of wheat, you'll notice that there is a lot of seeds on the top of that wheat stalk. So um, when you get yields of two to one uh, over time, this means that a huge portion of the crop was lost to inefficient planting, pests, drought, mold, and even theft. But a few caveats. Like I said, this figure represents an average over centuries of records from all over the place. And the first thing to say is that these are tax records, so it's plausible that the peasants were hiding some stuff away. The second thing is that because this is an average, this doesn't mean that every year was this grim. Indeed, in some years it was pretty high, um, and in some years crop failures were so bad that there was no return at all. There was also a lot of geographic variation, as I've said. Some land is just better than other land. And finally, the issue of the crop. Wheat initially involved in Turkey uh, and the Fertile Crescent in, in what is now Iraq and Turkey. Um, and while it has certainly changed a lot due to selective breeding by humans, I think it's pretty obvious to say that a plant that evolved in Iraq might not really do well in the Scottish Highlands or even just the British Isles as a whole, particularly without the uh, accelerated evolution that modern breeding programs have brought to the plate. While wheat genuinely does well in some places in Europe, it is really not ideal for a huge part of it. And yet, the post-Roman culture of Europe was deeply tied to the idea of bread as the nutritional basis of human existence. So, a lot of effort went into growing wheat. Podcast footnote. Due to the presence of gluten, wheat crops are actually much better suited to be used in bread than other similar grain products. Barley, oats, and other things like that don't have gluten of the same kind, which means that it doesn't form the elastic structures that you need in order to produce a fluffy loaf of bread. End podcast footnote.
Still, most of that wheat went to pay the taxes, the rents, and fees owed to the nobility. The peasants also grew oats, peas, barley, beans, lentils, etc. in great abundance, and these crops had much higher yields, or at least more sustainable yields. For example, uh, I've seen it said that oats may have had lower yields, but were much more uh, durable in terms of climate. But then oats uh, in most of Europe were considered animal feed. It's only in really marginal places like Scotland where oats were considered fit for human consumption. In general, the peasants uh, ate bread that was heavily adulterated with these other uh, kinds of grains and veg things that we would consider vegetable products like peas. Uh, and there were a lot of regulations about how much of such other flowers bakers were allowed to add to their products, uh, and this was a major preoccupation. But of course, bread was not the only thing that people consumed. For one thing, they made beer and other alcoholic beverages. Every household in the village with the means would engage in brewing, which was generally done by the women of the household. When a batch was ready, the household would hang a sign outside and invite their neighbors to come sample the wares in return for some kind of compensation. Of course, one could not just allow such products to be offered without some sort of prof I mean quality control. And so the lords of the manor established official positions in charge of monitoring and improving the quality of these products. Such officials would go around and sample the products, for free, when they became available, and make their determinations of quality. In England, these positions were elected, just like the position of village reeve, which I'll get to in a minute, but basically that's the village headman. Unlike the position of the reeve, which was usually somewhat cordially traded around amongst the top families in the village, competition for the position of beer taster was often fierce and fairly ill-tempered. This was despite the fact that there were usually multiple positions, and they were often unpaid. We discussed in one of the Podiversary episodes how the diet of the peasantry was mostly made up of what we might call savory porridges, or soups made from small scraps of meat, thickened with whatever grains or beans were at hand, and finished up with vegetables. Uh, this was then served over large chunks of bread. Even today, what we call the exchange rate of the amount of energy you feed to an animal versus the amount you get out of them uh, is fairly inefficient, and that's with the benefit of, you know, uh, two centuries of modern breeding programs that the medievals didn't have uh, the advantage of. Medieval breeds of animals were less efficient at feed conversion than their modern counterparts, and so yielded less meat for an equivalent amount of food. Still, the peasantry needed protein and fat, and there were places where it was not possible to grow crops for human consumption. Humans can't eat grass. And the animals also served purposes other than food production, which made it important to keep them around. For example, you needed oxen and horses for plowing, and sheep produced wool for clothing. Uh, milk was also a very important source of protein, uh, even if it wasn't meat. Animals and their products were thus a highly valued part of the medieval farming system. At one time, in amongst historians, there was a popular theory that excess animals which could not be fed during the winter would be slaughtered at the end of fall, and that these animals would then have to be eaten, or preserved, and it was said that the importance of this whole cycle led to the popularity of Christmas and similar holidays in European culture. 
Modern scholarship suggests that if there was such a thing happening, it was not a conscious choice anyway. People did not consider animals excess. Rather, they would raise them until they were big enough, or they couldn't feed them, and then slaughter them. As we do today. They might, of course, wait to do so for an important meat-driven festival, but beyond this there does not seem to be anything to this old theory beyond a nice idea. In any case, when an animal was slaughtered, it was usually because they had a secondary use but had outlived it. For example, an ox that was too old to pull a plow. The exception was the pig, which was raised exclusively for meat, and which served an important function disposing of waste in the village. Whatever the inspiration for the slaughter, the meat thus acquired had to be either eaten fresh, which was a luxury usually reserved for the nobility, or preserved. This was done by salting, drying, smoking, or pickling the meat. Which option was chosen was down to the nature of the meat in question, local tradition, and the local availability of things like salt, firewood, and vinegar. There are two key points here. First, medieval peasants were definitely generalists. Their farm work would involve growing a mixture of different kinds of grains and beans, not to mention the vegetables in the cottage garden, the livestock they raised, the wool and milk and meat they got from those animals, and the products they gathered from the forest, and whatever small game and fish they could catch or trap. In Mediterranean areas with appropriate soils and climates, grapes and olives were grown, often interspersed, actually with the wheat fields or vegetable gardens. The second key point gets us back to those crop yields. Medieval peasants were often on the edge of starvation, for at least some part of the year. If the appallingly low crop yields were not enough evidence, archaeological evidence shows adults with stunted growth, bones and teeth showing evidence of malnutrition, and written in archaeological evidence of appallingly high infant mortality rates. This contributes to the grimdark picture of the medieval peasant life, Always one drought or early rainstorm or rat infestation or insect swarm or passing army away from a disaster which could carry away children and loved ones. In this context, the exactions of the nobility, which could take a half or more of a villager's production, seem downright predatory, and this is used to condemn the Middle Ages as particularly harsh and inefficient. Winter would have been particularly bad for the peasants, as nothing could grow, but it actually wasn't the worst time. In medieval documents, it's the early spring that was described as the starving time. This is when the provisions from the fall are running low, but nothing edible had yet grown beyond a few herbs. To make matters worse, the peasants would have had to begin working at this time to plant the first crop. One of the most compelling images of abject misery I have ever read is the passage with which we started today's episode. The passage describes a peasant couple attempting to plant the first crop, despite the fact that the ground is still frozen. As the husband works the plow, the wife sows the seeds, the ground breaks into sharp shards, which cut the bare feet of the couple as they wail in misery at their fate. We should probably put this into context, however. That passage was a propaganda piece, written by a person who was trying to make a theological point that's really not important for this discussion. The larger picture of poor public health is basically the same for every Western agricultural society I have studied, and I suspect that it would be the same in China and India as well. For the entire history of human civilization, from the Neolithic Revolution up to the invention of modern agricultural methods, the people who grew the food always lived on the brink, subject to the reversals of fortune due to forces far beyond their control. 
Taxation was always an element of this picture, to the point that, from what I know, there isn't a huge difference, from a health point of view, between the remains of poor people from the Roman period versus the medieval period. Some years were worse, some better, but the crops could always fail and the Lord would always want the taxes. Any kind of civilization in a pre-modern economy was built on taxes taken from farmers. That's just the way things were. That said, there was an element of reciprocity to the medieval system that was absent in other times and places. Peasants who worked on the Lord's domain were compensated, often in meals, and the entire village was feasted at the Lord's expense on special occasions throughout the year. Furthermore, the Lord did not expect the same amount in taxes in years when the harvest failed versus years when it was a bumper crop. And to be sure, it was in the Lord's best interest to keep everyone alive and farming on the estate, and so some famine relief would have been in the Lord's best interest. Often, to be sure, this relief was in the form of loans that would have to be repaid. And in the absence of long-range transportation systems, such relief could only make use of what was on hand locally, which meant that these famine relief programs instituted by the manor would only last for so long. By contrast, today we have technology that medieval peasants could only dream of. Tractors are air-conditioned and basically drive themselves. Chemical fertilizers and genetically modified crops produce more than enough food just from the industrialized world to feed the entire population of the planet many times over. We have jets that can cross oceans in hours and boats the size of skyscrapers full to the brim with cargo, and yet we are still surrounded by starving people. It is certainly legitimate to pity the peasant for their lack of technology and condemn feudalism for the lack of rights provided to the peasants, but I might caution you all against a moral condemnation of feudalism based on the poverty of the peasants. There's a hypocrisy there that often goes unexamined. So far, I've been talking generally about things common to all peasants, but I started this section by saying that the differences between the peasants determined what life was really like, and we should probably get back to that in light of this conversation about health outcomes. Because some people in the village had quite a few resources. The headman of the village was known in England, at least, as the Reeve, where he was a commoner and was usually elected by the village. In France, this position was usually appointed by the lord and eventually became uh, one of the lowest rungs of the nobility. Similar positions existed from place to place, and whether this person was appointed or elected uh, sort of determined their relationship to the rest of the village. In any case, the reeve was the overseer of the manor, and made sure everything was orderly in the lord's absence. This meant that the reeve oversaw the collection of rents, fees and taxes, and enforced labor dues. There was a considerable opportunity for enrichment in such a position, as you might expect, and it sometimes came with a small salary, but it was not enough to live on in places where it remained a peasant position. As I said, in England the position was elected, and was generally traded around amongst the leading families of the village as a way to spread the potential wealth around somewhat, and also keep people from abusing their authority too much. The Lord usually had a few key officials like the Reeve, and usually kept one or two armed commoners at the manor to help the Reeve keep law and order. We mentioned the skilled professionals of the village earlier, the priest, the blacksmith, the miller, the baker. Some villages had more positions like this, some less. The priest was probably the only one who received formal training, and the standards of that training were much lower than they are today. 
In general, the village priests were sons of wealthier peasants whose families were able to use connections with the nobility and their wealth to see the boy sent to a church school long enough to learn to say the mass, and usually not much longer than that. There are notorious reports of priests who only memorized the mass by rote and did not actually know how to read Latin. Priests were not really expected to preach to their congregations, though they were expected to provide some sort of moral guidance and leadership. As one of the few people in the village who had spent any length of time living outside it, as well as having a generous income from the land provided them by the tithes, uh, the priests would naturally have had a leadership role in the village. That said, the early Middle Ages were full of what we might politely call chicanery, as the details of what was required of the priest and what was required to be provided to the priest were still being nailed down. We will return to this topic in a later episode, but suffice it to say that often the noble who built the village church expected to receive the tithes. Much more common than the formal education of the priests was apprenticeship. Usually this happened within a family, where a person was the son of a baker and would learn how to bake, and then they would take over as the village baker later on. For some professions, particularly skilled masters would take on apprentices from far afield. For example, a blacksmith might have several helpers. Usually such masters would have been located in the market towns and cities. The village blacksmith would have had a lifetime to practice their craft, but would probably never have had the opportunity to make much beyond the things needed for the basic farming equipment of the village. Things like swords or armor, for example, required very high levels of skill that would not have been possessed by the village smith. I'm personally not convinced that the average smith would have had the chops for making kitchen equipment like pans or cauldrons. I suspect such implements would probably have been purchased at agricultural fairs in the market towns. But if you needed a shovel, a pick, a hoe, or the fittings for a plow, that's where the village smith would show up and help you out. Beyond the lord's officials and the people with skills, there would have been a number of other relatively wealthy families in the village. These would have been people who were very good at farming, or whose ancestors had been very good at farming, or who were lucky, and who had thereby acquired a more than average amount of land. There were no hard and fast barriers between these peasants and the ones with skills or noble officials. The nobles indeed drew their officials from this group, while the peasants with skills might or might not have been good at farming, which was the real source of wealth in the Middle Ages. One lively topic of discussion in the literature is the importance of legal status in acquiring wealth. Logically, a free peasant who paid fewer taxes and rents and who did less labor for the Lord uh, would have had an easier time becoming wealthy than an unfree peasant. My read is that almost all historians are hesitant to make this into a blanket statement. There is evidence of unfree peasants of talent amassing quite substantial amounts of wealth, and there are just too many problems with our data to make good determinations of the impact of social status on outcomes. Beyond the limited number of records, the numerous gradations of freedom and unfreedom combines with the differences between manners to make apples-to-apples statistical comparisons impossible. Still, it is clear that peasants strongly resented the results of being unfree and would struggle strongly in the legal system to avoid such a designation, and would buy their way out of it if given the opportunity. Then again, other peasants just dealt with it. Most peasants in the Middle Ages were not wealthy. 
what the median income is is nearly impossible to really determine as a result of inflation and the like, but since wealth was commonly an expression of land, let's take a minute to talk about the size of land holdings. Most people in the Middle Ages had a concept of the amount of land required by a peasant family to comfortably sustain themselves in a good year with a reasonable amount of work. This amount was rendered into a land unit, which was called a hide in England, and I'm just going to use that uh, for simplicity's sake. This unit varied in size based on the fertility of the soil in a given area, which makes things difficult for historians, the poor lambs. It seems likely that initially each family was given one hide of land by the lord, but that over time these land holdings were broken up by inheritance, dowries, sales, and the like. As a result, the records often list a family as owning fractions of hides. So a family that owned half a hide owned half of the amount of land that was required to sustain themselves comfortably in a good year with a reasonable amount of work. A family with two hides had double the amount of land needed to sustain themselves re reasonably in a good year with a re you get the idea. Determining what the average family held is difficult for reasons we will get to in a moment, but the general consensus is that it was somewhere between one hide and half a hide, with most historians preferring the higher side of the scale. So the largest chunk of peasant families would have had enough land to more or less sustain themselves based on farm work on their own land, but they probably needed to do at least some extracurricular activities beyond the farm work to really break even, let alone get ahead. This would have especially been the case for the unfree peasants. A variety of spot work would have been available in the medieval village. One key source of income would have been the aforementioned fairs in the market towns. At these fairs, extra grain could be sold for cash, along with other agricultural products, handicrafts, goods that could be harvested from the forests or wasteland areas, preserved foods, and textiles. Many areas in Europe had natural resources, like salt, wood, or silver, that were harvested and then sold at these fairs. Salt and silver mining often became a key component of the Lord's labor dues for villagers in the appropriate areas. So with all this spot work, this is where the family household as an economic unit became critical for the survival of the family and where gender roles rise to the front. The traditional view is that men did the heavy labor, like farming or mining or woodcutting, while women worked the cottage garden, made textiles and cared for the children, cleaned the house and cooked the food. It does seem that there was some concept of tasks being gender separated to some extent. But the idea of a hard separation between gender roles is, in the Middle Ages, as with pretty much every time period in human history, a luxury for the wealthy. There are plenty of records of women helping with farm work, particularly during difficult times like the sowing and the harvest. The harvest in particular was an all-hands-on-deck kind of time. On the other hand, in places where textile production became particularly important economically, Men would actively participate in, in the process, and sometimes excluded the women from it. Now, one of the most tragic pieces of evidence for this, uh, and the blurry nature of gender roles, are the spikes in death records for children during the harvest season. With both parents needed to do farm work, infants would be left alone, or in the care of an only slightly older child. While many modern commentators alternate be between bewailing overprotective parents and bewailing the fate of latchkey children in our decadent modern age, 
The coroner's reports of children trampled in the fields by oxen or burned to death by unattended cooking fires once again offer a refutation of the idea of a sepia-toned past golden age. Of course, in the legal codes, women come off with much less gender parity than what I've presented here. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get to this in a later episode. Uh, they were able to inherit property, but only if there were no other male relatives. Um, they had some ability to represent themselves, but it wasn't very great. They weren't equal in the eyes of the law, in, in summary. The one thing we can really say for sure about... Uh, gender roles and the role of women in the medieval village and uh, rural peasant society is that they made very, very important economic contributions to the survivals of their families, just as they have done in every time and place in history. Many families had less land than average is a tautology I always find amusing. Terminology aside, there was a sizable portion of the medieval village that had to subsist on half a hide or less. Indeed, there was always a sizable number of cottagers, families who had no land other than the family vegetable patch attached to their house. Such families would have had to supplement their other economic activities by taking on work from the wealthier families in the village. Uh, this meant doing day labor, farm work, though some domestic service jobs may have been available as well. In any case, it was a precarious existence that most peasants sought to avoid, but was probably common enough. In any case, being an unfree cottager would have been very inconvenient indeed. Below the cottagers on the socioeconomic scale, there were probably some people who owned no land at all, not even a house. Such people had to subsist on such salaries as they could draw by working in the lord's household, as day laborers on the farms, or by taking other kinds of spot work. They probably lived with relatives or in the households of their employers. It is very difficult to know how many of such individuals there might have been in an average village. They certainly appear in stories and records of all kinds, but most of the records we have from the Middle Ages are focused on the owning and working of land, and on the household as the primary unit of society. The records would seem to indicate that they were present as a class, but not large. It's possible that when too many of such individuals accumulated in the village, some of them eventually moved on to larger towns or cities or went and founded their own village. On the other hand, work for such people did apparently exist and probably was in abundance. My suspicion, based on what I know about demography and modern survey work for my day job, is that there were far more of this kind of peasant than historians currently suspect. The cheapness of human life in the Middle Ages, the large families, and the fact that nobles seem to have had a magical ability to conjure common soldiers out of thin air so long as they had food and money, indicates to me that there may have been a large class of people always just sort of around. At the same time, pinning the numbers down with evidence is going to be essentially impossible at this distance, and my knee-jerk instincts may not apply in an era where early deaths due to illness were common. There is one last kind of rural peasant to discuss before we close. Around every village was a wilderness area, though these certainly shrank as the Middle Ages advanced. As I discussed earlier, these were very economically important, but if one went far enough from the confines of the village, it was entirely possible to get away from other people. This was the domain of the outlaw. These came in many flavors. Some were landless peasants trying to make it 
to a town or city, serfs who had fled their manor for whatever reason. Others were people who had committed a crime and had been driven from their village. Some were poachers, and then there were bandits. Bandits were outlaws actively engaged in raiding travelers or villages. Many bandits were commoners, but a not inconsiderable number were nobles who had fallen on hard times. While many bandits were simply at war with the world, in the early Middle Ages it was very common for lords to enter into arrangements with bandit gangs. The bandits would leave the lord's villages alone and give the lord a cut of the profits from the raids, and the lord would look the other way. Indeed, since many lords had the right to collect tolls on roads and bridges, it was often impossible to tell the difference between a lord collecting such a toll and a bandit extorting one. There may not indeed have really been much of a difference by all accounts. For the villagers, any and all of these outsiders were dangerous. Anyone a person did not know was a potentially dangerous bandit, and of course the nobility encouraged this kind of xenophobia. After all, it helped to discourage the peasant from running away, if the only people they ever knew were those in their own village, and they then knew that if they ran away, they would be treated like bandits in every village they found. At the same time, hospitality was and is a core value in Western civilization, and so people from other places who were known might be warmly welcomed. And since villages were not truly self-sufficient, social contacts made at trade fairs and in other ways became very important. They allowed trade and travel in other villages, and these contacts often resulted in marriages between the families of business partners. Such contacts helped keep medieval villages from becoming dangerously inbred, but they also showed that marriage as a business contract was as much part of the life of the peasantry as it was for the nobility. While we might look askance at such things, the possibility of such an outcome must have made traveling to trade fairs very exciting indeed for young people in the Middle Ages, who just accepted it as part of life. On that hopeful note, let's end for today by bringing this all back around. We started by talking about how the village was the ideal basic unit for rural peasants in the Middle Ages, though it was rarely so simple. In any case, most villages in northern Europe used the three-field common field system. In this system, the land belonged to the village, and the village as a unit decided which of the three fields would be planted and how in a given year. Villagers owned portions of the field, which was parceled out into long, thin strips to limit the number of turns that would have to be made with the heavy plows they used. The village was in many ways a communal entity, with everyone taking some hand in the farm work needed to keep everyone fed, even the specialists like the blacksmith or the priest. Most of the peasants were generalists who did mostly farm work, but also gathered in the forest or made handicrafts for sale at market fairs. All were very much subject to starvation based on the variabilities of pre-modern farming methods, especially in late winter and early spring. But not everyone in the village was equally vulnerable. Cottagers and landless peasants worked on other people's properties to make their living and faced the most food insecurity. Most peasants owned some land, but would still struggle in bad years. The wealthiest peasants, who had accumulated land, were the least vulnerable and often had a skill like baking, and held manorial offices. Whether the office or the wealth came first is impossible to learn from this distance. Food insecurity was probably not helped by the heavy tax burden that the peasants lived under, though the nobility would try to help in emergency situations. This, too, was an unequal burden. 
The peasants were divided into very fine distinctions of free and unfree, with unfree peasants owing labor dues and having to pay more in taxes than their unfree neighbors. A lot of this flies in the face of most of the popular narratives we think we know about the lower classes in the Middle Ages. Obviously, the idea of loyal, hard-working peasants cheering their lord as he rode past before dancing around a maypole is pretty preposterous. Peasants faced a stark food insecurity problem, even in the best periods of the Middle Ages, and the manorial system, in which they had little political voice, was designed to extract as much wealth from them as possible. On the other hand, the grimdark vision of peasant life is also pretty ridiculous. The records show a very human picture of the peasants. Many did work hard, loved their families, enjoyed the company of their neighbors at whatever house had just tapped a keg of the local brew. They also gossiped, had affairs, got into fights, killed each other, stole from each other, and the like. In emergencies, they banded together, helped each other out, and defended their village from bandits. They were also xenophobic and superstitious, and if you became socially isolated from the village, it could be very dangerous for you when bad times were at hand. In short, the peasants of the Middle Ages were human like us, but lived in a very different culture with very different resources at their disposal in a very different society. As a whole, it was probably no worse to be a peasant in the Middle Ages than in the Roman Empire, and it was certainly better to be a medieval serf than a Roman agricultural slave. The open field system, which was at the heart of this way of life, has been criticized by many as being resistant to change and innovation and that it helped hold back improvements in the quality of life for medieval society. I have to say that I basically disagree with this view almost completely. Certainly, modern agricultural methods produce greater yields, but when early versions of those methods were adopted in the late early modern period, that was not necessarily obvious. The move from generalism to monocrop economies, which is so lauded by economists, resulted in greater food insecurity rather than less a situation which basically persisted until transportation technology allowed for the rapid movement of food to places of scarcity. Arguably, the cash crop economy still causes food insecurity in places where the population is not prosperous enough to absorb the financial impact of a bad year. On the other hand, the variety of medieval microcultures shows that there was plenty of innovation in the Middle Ages, one need only look at the sheer variety of traditional French cheeses, for example, to see what I'm talking about. Peasants found, over time, ways to get the most out of their particular local situation. The obsession with wheat was certainly a weakness, but as an American with a certain weakness for red meat, despite its well-known negative impacts on the environment and my health, I'm certainly in no position to judge. So that's it for today, folks. Next time we will be discussing the medieval city which will allow me to put on my urban planner hat for probably the first time in this show. I'm pretty excited about that, so if you want to join me in my exploration of haberdashery, be sure to tune in next time for another episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.